For some time now, Felix Sater has been an international man of mystery at the center of the Trump-Russia story. It was Sater, a real estate associate and advisor to Donald Trump, who in 2015 dreamed up the idea for a gleaming Trump Tower in Moscow, a project that he hoped would garner the blessing of Vladimir Putin. Sater was also a convicted felon who in the 1990s had been indicted and convicted of working with the mafia on a fraudulent pump-and-dump stock scheme that built investors out of millions of dollars. But Sater was also something else, a secret government informant who, he claimed, all the while he was arranging deals for Trump, was diming out mobsters, swindlers, and terrorists to the FBI and CIA. Just how important and genuine Sater's cooperation with the government has long been a subject of debate. But now, newly revealed documents unsealed by a federal judge flesh out the picture, and it turns out vindicates Sater more than his critics ever would have imagined. Quote, Sater's cooperation was of a depth and breadth rarely seen. Federal prosecutors in Brooklyn wrote in 2009 in a letter just now made public by the U.S. judge who oversaw his case. For approximately 10 years, they wrote, Sater continuously worked with prosecutors and law enforcement agents to provide information crucial to the conviction of over 20 different individuals, including those responsible for committing massive financial fraud, members of La Cosa Nostra organized crime families, and international cyber criminals. And that's not all. Sater also flew off to Afghanistan and Central Asia, where he tapped his sources to provide the CIA with information on the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden, his satellite telephone numbers, the internal structures and financial capabilities of Al-Qaeda, and, for good measure, he gave the government details of an assassination plot against then-President George W. Bush. It's the latest twist in the Trump-Russia saga, and we'll dissect it with Sater himself, on this special bonus episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We have the international man of mystery himself in the studio, Felix Sater. Welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. So this is your first interview since the government's 5K letter was released, 5K letter being what the prosecutors submit to the court requesting a downward departure from the sentencing guidelines to give you leniency. Now, you've told a lot of people about your cooperation over the years. I think it's fair to say that some of that was met with skepticism. But the government, in its letter, they called you an exemplary cooperator, and they said Sater's cooperation was of a breadth and depth rarely seen. You must feel some measure of vindication. Well, First of all, I haven't been talking about it for a long time. This is 20 years that I was doing it, and I never discussed it with anyone, never told anyone, just in passing, very lightly, without going into details. But you know, the last three years, the press has been extremely brutal to me, and it was very painful and unfair. And only at that point 
that I say it because I just figured everyone has positives and negatives in their life, good behavior, bad behavior. Well, not everyone, me. <laughs> Let me speak for myself. And that's where I felt it was unfair, and I mentioned it. But for 17 years prior to that, I never told anyone. I did it because I didn't do it for any accolades, and I didn't do it for any acknowledgement. I did it because I felt it was important. Now that this has come out, and yeah, because for three years, people have been saying, has to be bullshit. Yeah, well, I mean, because a lot of it is pretty extraordinary. I mean, including uh, providing the satellite number of uh, Osama bin Laden and other information at a time when uh, uh, bin Laden and al-Qaeda were preparing and engaging in serious attacks against the United States leading up to 9-11. Look, I knew he was a bad guy. I knew I had the skills and the ability to help protect our country and in some cases maybe even take him out. And... Somebody that I knew who wanted to hurt American citizens, who wanted to do harm to our country, how could I not do it? Felix, there's so much to unpack here, but I think one question that everybody's going to have is who reads about this letter and all the work you did undercover exposing mobsters and exposing cyber criminals, exposing Russian organized crime figures and exposing terrorists is... How do you know all these people? How did you have the contacts to help the government in the ways they said you did in this letter? Cold calling. Just kidding. <laughs> um, That's what you did as a real estate guy. No, that's what I did as a stockbroker. I was a cold caller as a stockbroker. Yeah. I started as a cold caller, yeah. then became a stockbroker. A, we're all one or two or three degrees of separation from anybody on this planet. And I made it my purpose and my mission to go and find these people. And whenever I would meet somebody that I thought that could be helpful in that direction, I would cultivate those relationships, whether it was in Afghanistan or in Russia or even in the United States. Let's go to Afghanistan, because that's what I think people are going to start and think it sounds a bit improbable. You're a guy, you were born in Russia, you were raised in Brooklyn, you grew up in New York, you started in the stock trade. How do you have contacts in Afghanistan that could help reveal uh, plans about Stinger missiles and satellite phones for Osama bin Laden? Well, first of all, remember that Russia had a war in Afghanistan prior to our war in Afghanistan. And at that war, we were supplying the Mujahideen, which were fighting the Soviets. And in 97, 98, I was working on a telecommunications deal in Russia. Telecommunications in Russia was pretty much controlled by their GRU, which is their military intelligence arm. So I ran across all of these people. And one of the guys happened to have been an advisor and arms dealer to Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was the head of the Northern Alliance. Ahmad Shah Massoud, if you remember, was the guy who was killed by al-Qaeda two days before 9-11 because he was pro-American, and bin Laden knew that after 9-11, the U.S. would use him as a proxy to wage war. So they decided to cut the head off at the top, and they um, assassinated him two days before 9-11. I was introduced to, well, the guy that I knew in Russia who was working on the deal with me was very close to him. He was a senior advisor. In fact, there's a whole bunch this of stuff. This is uh, like Evgeny Shmikov? Uh, right. Yes. Right. 
who was uh, a former Russian GRU officer who became an arms dealer. Yeah, that's him. And uh, he introduced me to a bunch of Afghan guys because at that point the war was over and he was an advisor to them, selling them arms, all, you know, all sorts of stuff. And he introduced me to them and I cultivated those relationships. But I don't know how to answer. How do I, uh, you know, how do I meet these people? I don't know. It's been an interesting life, well, to say I, the least. Yeah, and that, let's pick up on that, because I, I want to go back in time, because in some ways, yours is, is a great American immigrant story of sorts. And, you know, you, you have this extraordinary trajectory from, um, you know, mob-connected fraudster to uh, one of the federal government's most important witnesses um, in a generation. So let's start from the beginning. You're born in Russia. I was born in Moscow, 1966. I immigrated with my family. We left as political refugees. We had to pay to give up our Soviet passports. And, you know, you have to understand, being Jewish in the Soviet Union wasn't exactly a prize. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. It was a difficult place. They never considered us Russians. I never considered myself Russian. Still don't. I consider myself Jewish. And I don't think of myself as anything other than an American. I came here when I was seven years old. We but left you were Russia relatively well-to-do in Russia. Your father ran an important, large meat market, right? Yes. We were very wealthy in Moscow, but it wasn't an issue of money. It was an issue of, you know— But you end up in Brooklyn. Yes. We and, lost everything. And your we, father has to start all over again. We left a life of comfort to become immigrants simply because three generations of my family were trying to get the hell out of there. Both my great-grandparents— on both my maternal and paternal side, were both executed by the Soviets. My grandfather, my father's father, watched his father getting shot in the head by a Soviet commissar. My mother's father was sent to the gulags because he had a couple of chickens and a horse and a, and a cow, and he died because they just railroaded him and sent him to jail just because they were trying to collectivize all the farmers. So we have had a hate, a family hate, towards anything Soviet, and by extension, I'm guessing Russia. And we came here, and we left literally a life of comfort to come here because money can't buy you a feeling of being able to go to sleep and feeling good about yourself. So little Felix Sater is you're delivering the uh, the Jewish forward, the great Yiddish newspaper. I wasn't delivering it. I was hawking it. Hawking it in, uh, on the boardwalk, bright, uh, on the boardwalk in, in Brighton Beach. You go to this uh, tough high school, Abraham Lincoln High School, and then uh, you go to Pace University? Yes, Pace University. Pace University. And you get interested in finance and the fancy Wall Street firms are beckoning. Pick up the story from there. I started going to Pace University, driving a, a limo at night to make money and going to school by day. And there's an opportunity to go work at a place called Bear Stearns as an assistant, literally, cold caller. And I went there part-time. So about two weeks into the job, the broker that I was working for as his assistant gets his paycheck. And I think his paycheck, and again, this is from memory, so don't hold me to it, was something like $50,000 or $60,000 for the month. That evening, I went back because there was a career night at Pace. And Pace University is at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge, so it's really close to Wall Street. It's walking distance, and my job was at 55 Water. So I happened to go back to Pace and in my fraternity was a guy who was like the smartest kid in Pace, and he was going to graduate MAGA cum laude. And 
the career night, he's all excited because an accounting firm was going to give him something like $27,000 a year as a starting salary. And the guy I saw at Bear Stearns just got a check for 50000 for the month. And I knew that my fraternity brother was 10 times smarter than the broker I met at Bear Stearns. And I said, Wall Street, finance, if these guys could do it, I can do it. I effectively dropped out like a week later and went to Wall Street full time. And a key part of your origin story is a bar in or a restaurant, I guess a Mexican restaurant. Tex-Mex. In Tex-Mex in the 30s in Manhattan. Well, let me say this. You know, the, the history that is printed is always stock fraud case. I went to Wall Street and worked for many years in the most legitimate firms. The only reason that that came around is because of what you're mentioning now. I was a stockbroker working at very legitimate firms, very successful. Went to a, it was a bar. It was our regular bar because our office was at 605 Third Avenue, which is, uh, I think, 40th Street. And this is El Rio Grande on, I think it was 38th Street. So it was literally the place that we had lunch, dinner, drinks, everything. Still there, apparently. Is it still there? I haven't been back in a while. I was there. We were there to celebrate one of the guys getting his broker's license. A lot of drinking. And there was a guy at the bar, and I was at the bar, and we were drunk, and we got into a bar fight. It was just two guys full of piss and vinegar, you know, masters of the universe, because he was also a he was a commodities trader, if I remember, or a currency trader. I don't what remember year was exactly. This? So this is this is ninety one. So I had already been working on Wall Street for six, seven years. And it was over a woman, if I read well, correctly. I don't even know if you could say over a woman, because neither he knew her nor I knew her. But there was a woman. <laughs> there was alcohol and a woman. Isn't there always an al- alcohol and a woman? This is straight out of Tom Wolfe. <laughs> so, and we get into okay. a bar fight, and you know he's a little huskier than I am. Knocked me down a few times. I kept getting up. I guess I'm just too stupid to stay down. And you know I saw him going for a beer bottle, and I grabbed the margarita glass. I did not break it first. It was one motion. He was going for a beer bottle. I went for the first thing I could grab. I hit him first. My life's trajectory changed completely. I was subsequently the next day, I was taken to the hospital, first of all, but I was arrested. And eventually I um, wasn't smart enough to figure out what to deal with it because I didn't think a bar fight, and everyone likes to make it sound like there was something horrible. It wasn't that horrible because he tried to drop the charges. All he wanted was $50,000 from me, pain and suffering, which I... Gladly Although he did have him. 110 stitches, I believe. Thus the 50 grand, and I paid him. But he didn't want yeah. to press charges. The DA wouldn't let him because the DA wanted to put pressure on my dad. And subsequently... Explain that. Which part? Why would the DA want to your dad. put pressure on your dad? No, they had, they, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. They wanted to. And eventually I went to trial, which was a mistake, lost at trial. And I was sent to jail, and I was sent to jail. To I spent Riker, about Rikers? Rikers Island. Yeah, that was a, that was a classic. So I spent about three months in Rikers, and then I hired a new attorney who got me out on appeal bond. So now I'm out of jail three months, but I still have a sentence hanging over me, pending the appeal. I've got no money. I've got a young daughter who was born, my firstborn. Probably haven't paid rent in three months. I don't remember the details of all of my financial issues there, and my attorney who needs to file the appeal so that I don't go back to jail says it's 100000 for the appeal. You know, as a felon in this country, you can't even get a job in McDonald's. 
Plus, I was angry because I felt that it was unfair that I went to jail over a bar fight where the victim wanted to drop the charges. No matter what you say, no matter what his injuries were, he wanted 50 grand and to drop the charges. Feel free to call him and ask him. And he'll tell you that that's the truth. The DA wouldn't let him. So I was angry and I needed money. And that's how I got involved in the stock fraud. But for many years, I was working as a very legitimate stockbroker. Let's discuss the stock fraud because it's it is laid out in the 5K letter because they do you know want to spell out the crimes that you committed with some pretty unsavory characters, a bunch of mobsters with ties to uh, all the major uh, La Cosa Nostra families in New York at the time. How did you get involved with them? Well. The thing is, they were very much a fixture on Wall Street in the shady part of Wall Street, which I was never a part of until right after the bar fight, until going to jail. And I started a firm with three other friends and partners. And when you're doing criminal stuff, the criminals show up because all of the guys that were working there were either from Brooklyn and Staten Island. And you're a Brooklyn kid, right? You know, everyone's got a friend. So any argument about anything is, oh. I'm going to go to my uncle or I'm going to go to my guy or whatever. And eventually they try to show up and extort you. So the idea that they were any kind of masterminds, they weren't. They were muscle. Anytime there was an argument, whoever, whether it was somebody shorting the stock or fighting or two brokers fighting over a book or whatever it was, it would wind up, you know, some guy in Brooklyn with a vowel at the end of his name wanted to have a conversation. And those conversations always end badly unless you have somebody of a similar stature to protect you. And I grew up in Brooklyn, knew all those guys, so that's how they came into the picture. But it certainly wasn't a firm that they were a part of. We gave them some money and some IPO profits to keep the other wolves at bay. That was the involvement of the mob. It's been described as a pump-and-dump scheme. Just explain that in plain English, what you were doing. Well, we were taking companies public, we would buy the stock very cheaply uh, in a private placement. It was very elaborate. We would buy it in offshore company names. We'd pay $0.10 cents for the warrants. We'd take the company public at $5 a share. We would pump the stock to $10, but our warrants, which were exercisable in price at, say, $6 or $5.50, now became worth $5, something that we paid $0.10 cents for, and in many cases didn't even pay the $0.10. Cents. So... You raise the price to $10, and then you start moving out your position to basically unsuspecting investors. And you had to launder the uh, profits in uh, offshore accounts? Well, no. Actually, the money was already in the names of offshore accounts, but because the brokers needed to be paid and they were paid in cash, that's where the laundering happened because you needed the money to pay everyone, and you couldn't really write them a check. So that's where the laundering happened. So you start this because you need to pay your legal yes. fees. Yes. And then you eventually do a fairly significant amount of time for that bar fight. How, how long were you were you uh, in? All totem, if I had to guess, about 14 months, yeah. 15 months, which, you know, you have to understand the entire stock fraud thing lasted two years or a little less than two years, of which a year of it, I was in jail. So- and I voluntarily, and it says it in my paperwork, actually, I voluntarily left myself in 96 and stopped being involved in that dirty business. And it's I many years, it. it's years later before the feds 
No, about two, two no, years later. Two years later. And, and tell the story of how they get onto this fraud scheme. They found a locker with some paperwork and some guns, which somebody who was involved with us had. And um, they knew a little bit about it, I guess. So, you know, they started investigating. And as soon as I found out... By this time, you... Where are you when, when you I'm get the call? Well, I, was, I was sent... I was asked by um, a member of the royal family, Lord Charles Spencer Churchill, who's actually Winston's nephew and Diana, the one who died, Diana's okay, for uncle. The conspiracy right, wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> How do you know Winston Churchill's grandson? I, come on. What? Come on what? <laughs> How do you know this guy, Churchill? Uh, I was introduced to him by somebody from... The Wachtell family, which is Wachtell Lipton, the big law firm yeah. in New York, they introduced me to him, and I paid him to be on the board of things or sort of, you know, you bring him around. It's like, you know, celebrity. You bring a celebrity around. I brought a royal family member around and paid him for the pleasure of his company. And um, he tells me that a friend of his invested like $10 million in a telecommunications company in Russia. Now, you have to understand, at this point, I'm already out of the stock business. Uh, and I'm looking to, you know, what's next? What am I going to do with my life? I don't want to be involved in illegal crap. So he tells me about this uh, situation that the guy invested in a phone company in Russia. And uh, he said, could you help him out? Maybe ask around. I said, sure. It was a time of opportunity in Russia. It was like the Wild West. Communism had just fallen. They literally had no institutions of any kind, whether it was banking or anything else. Nothing's regulated, really. Nothing's regulated. It's the wild, wild west, <clears throat> completely wild, wild west. And, you know, there's opportunities. You know, back here, I'm a convicted felon for a bar fight, and I can't even get a job in McDonald's. There, I'm a Russian-speaking Wall Street specialist. It's so ironic that the, uh, you know, the refugee from the Soviet Union has to go back to Russia to take advantage of unbridled capitalism. Yeah, exactly. That why we we left because capitalism was a crime and you went to jail if you bought a pair of jeans for $10 and sold them for 15. You actually went to jail for that. Right. Because that's what socialism and communism means. Most people don't get that, but I was born there so I know exactly what the disease of socialism actually means. So yeah, I went there and I start asking around about this guy's investment and uh, I can't get all the doors kept getting slammed in my face. So I pick up the phone and I call Evgeny, who was introduced to me by somebody that I met in New York who was studying finance. He was a Russian who had worked for Evgeny in the past, and he was living in New York and studying finance. We met at some restaurant, and I literally would help him with his homework sometimes. Remind but, us who Evgeny is again. He's the, uh, he's the former GRU uh, uh, Intel guy. Evgeny Shmikov. Do yes. I, how, do, how do we pronounce his last name? Yeah, you said it right. It doesn't matter. It's a Russian last name. Nobody's going to know the difference either way. Um, right. Okay. So, and he's not listed, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I call him and I say, listen, uh, I'm trying to find out about this company. And now, I was introduced to him, so I already had dinner with him a few times. We already developed sort of a light friendship. And I said, I have an issue. I'm trying to find out about this company in St. Petersburg. Do you know anything about it? He said, you know, let me figure it out. A day goes by. He calls me the next day and says, come to dinner. I show up at dinner, and it's him and these two guys in suits. But you could tell that they're intel, military. You could tell by the bus cut haircuts. And they basically turn around and say to me, you know, you're asking a lot of questions about this. 
you should stop asking while you still have the ability to ask questions. And I looked in their eyes and realized these guys were not kidding. You know, I'm from Brooklyn, so I know pretty much who's uh, full of shit and who can actually do a little damage. Gentlemen, you'll never hear from me again. I get up to leave. They said, no, 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 wait a second. We're not finished speaking with you. At that point, I got extremely uncomfortable. They said, please sit down. But okay. So I sat down and we're talking. And they said, forget about this other guy. He just invested in something. But, you know, you speak Russian. You were on Wall Street for so many years. We have the ability of starting a telecommunications company. It could be worth billions of dollars. You have to understand, at that time, calling to Russia was like 3 to $4 a minute. So there was a great opportunity to rent a transatlantic cable from AT&T and then resell it, whether it was phone cards, selling private companies, um, basically like a private phone company, like an IDT. And I said, sure, let's go, because I wasn't investing any money. And these guys told me we have everything, licensing, we could, you know, we control the whole process here. I got very excited about it. It was a good opportunity. And eventually, as I started dealing with a bunch of these guys, I came to the realization that they were all intelligence operatives, for the most part, or military guys. It was Signal Intel. I didn't care. You know, I didn't have any secrets that uh, they could uh, beat out of me, so it didn't matter to me. And then one day, we went to the baths. We went to very famous baths in Moscow called the Sanduni. And they're like 150 years old or something. And the Russian baths are all about, you know, drinking and birch leaves being being beaten with birch leaf branches and a very hot, hot, hot sauna. And then afterwards, already thoroughly sauced, we decided to go on to dinner. And there must have been, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, twelve guys. I, I, don't, I don't remember the count, but it was all Evgeny and his, and his buddies. And uh, an older American guy walks into the restaurant and Evgeny screams out, hey, you two should get to know each other. You're both CIA. Now, I laughed it off because basically to them, everybody from America was CIA because that's how they grew up. You know, they grew up being worried about American spies and all of that. And he says, you should meet this guy, Milton Blaine. Milton sits down, but Milton happens to be a real spy. And these guys are. I'm the only one who's a kid from Brooklyn sitting at a table, a table uh, full of uh, Russian and American spies. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like, OK, this is interesting. You know, what's next in life? And all evening long, Milton is like peppering me with questions. Sister's name, where I go to school, et cetera, et cetera. And then I go to the bathroom and he follows me into the bathroom, says, can I have your phone number? I said, sure. I give him my phone number. The next day he calls me and says, meet me. There was this Irish pub where all the expats, Australians, the English, Americans, whoever lived and worked in Russia at the time, would go to this pub. It was favorite of the expat community. I meet him there. Literally within five minutes of showing up to meet him there, he says to me, you know, I work for the Defense Intelligence Agency, and your country needs you. And before he got the words out of his mouth, I said, I'm in. He said, wait a second, you don't even know what you're in for. I said, you just said my country needs me. I'm in. And he says to me, he said, look, you know, the guys that you're sitting at the table with drinking and singing songs, me and my friends, for the last 30 years of our lives, we tried to figure out what car they were driving. If we actually figured out the license plate number, that was like Christmas came early. You're sitting there having drinks with them and telling jokes. He says, you understand what level of people you're sitting with? I said, look, I assumed that they were serious guys because we're talking about a serious telecommunications deal. But I didn't know how important they were. And he said, look, you know, your country needs you, but there's a problem. It's very risky. 
the Soviets initially had developed an uh, anti-satellite system, which basically, bottom line was it would have allowed their bombers to fly all the way to the United States despite the uh, radar jamming capabilities that we have because it would have jammed the radar jamming capabilities. And he made it, he told me straight out, he goes, listen, Russian bombers could actually hit D.C. or New York, and we need in any way, shape, or form anything to do with the system. Could you help us get it? He said, but look, if you're caught, you understand you're a Jewish kid born in this country. You're basically a traitor to them already because you gave up your passport and left to America, and now you're coming back as a grown young man to spy on them. He said, the best you could hope for is probably a bullet in the head. He said, and the worst that could happen to you is you'll wind up finding out about a cell where the words Raoul Wallenberg was here scrolled, scrolled across the top. He said, and we're not stepping up for you because you're not officially working for us. I said, look, I'm in. It doesn't matter. And um, I proceeded to start trying to bribe Russian military operatives and get scientists and go to closed military cities to uh, find him this weapon did system. Did they give you any training? I mean, uh, any? Tra- did you learn tradecraft? Or? Yeah, Milton bought me a beer. <laughs> uh, no. No, my tradecraft came from uh, Brooklyn. Yeah. That's where I learned all my tradecraft, Coney Island, <laughs> across the street from the Cyclone. I learned everything I needed to I learn about life. I bought you a few beers, by the way, <laughs> yeah. Felix. I well, listen, so I, I keep offering uh, to pay, but you journalists have this <laughs> ethics issue about you can't take a drink from me. We're equal in trade. That's our tradecraft. Uh, well, listen, so, Michael, so I want to say well, one thing to you. Not only do I appreciate sure. the drinks that you bought for me, but I appreciate how many times in the future you'll keep buying me drinks. I'd like to thank you in advance. (laughs) Well done. Well done. In your close of the government's letter, which lays out all the things you did for them. Didn't lay out all of it. uh, It laid out some of it. It was a summary. Uh, Okay. It was far from all all of it. Sater went above and beyond what is expected of most cooperators and placed himself in great jeopardy in so doing. How did you place yourself in great jeopardy? Going to Afghanistan to try to buy Stinger missiles, hunt bin Laden, you know things like that. De- in Russia, I just well, told what, you what would have you... happened to me. What, what would have happened to me in Russia right. if they caught me? That was grave jeopardy. Pretty much everything I but did was, was in there, grave jeopardy. Was there a moment that you thought your life was in danger? And if so, can you tell oh, us? I've got the about story. a dozen of those moments. You know, I, well, I don't give know. us one or two. Ah. <sighs> I think there's a reference to some events in Cyprus, maybe, in the, in your lawyer's letter. But, oh, um, yeah. So the U.S. government, just to get rid of one fallacy, mm-hmm. I did this to get out of jail. There's a legal term for that. It's called bullshit. When I came back in 98 and surrendered to the U.S. government voluntarily and having had gone out of the stock scam business <coughs> voluntarily, I showed up and gave them Osama bin Laden's satellite phone numbers. I then proceeded to not only cooperate on my case, but teach them all the tradecraft on how to uncover stock fraud. I surrendered sometime at the end of 98. By the middle of 99, I knew I wasn't going to jail. Yet I continued working with them prior to sentencing for another 10 years, and then after sentencing for another 10 years. So the concept that I did this all to get out of jail is nonsense. I didn't do this to get out of jail. Yes, I certainly wanted the credit at sentencing time for the things that I did, but I wasn't worried because, listen, there were 19 defendants in my case. 15 of them didn't go to jail. 
So I wasn't exactly facing, you know, triple life or anything like that to begin with. And I can assure you that there's not one prosecutor in the United States that sends cooperators on a stock fraud case to hunt bin Laden. So let's throw out this whole concept that I did it to get out of jail. I did not. Yes, I wanted the credit at, at sentencing, but I already knew that I wasn't going to jail. Right. So that, you know, it's important because that's the only thing they write, which is, you know, he did this to get out of jail. And again, as I tell you, it's bullshit. I didn't. Right. So you begin cooperating with the government in 98, and that continues for 10 years. And I think it was 11 years total. But wait, wait, I I just want to get the the, the chronology right here, because aren't you in Russia when the feds learn about the— Here's the thing. I started working with the DIA and then the CIA on the Stinger missiles— and uh, there was a, buy, the hunt, a the buyback for, program. There was a buyback pro. It was it was a it was a presidential uh, uh, directive by President Bill Clinton to get these stingers, which we gave to the Mujahideen to fight the Russians, to get them out of their hands, off the market yeah. because they were going to resell them to Al Qaeda. Right. Al Qaeda was looking for these stinger missiles so that they could take down U.S. planes. That was their goal. So I went into Afghanistan and I found stinger missiles and found their serial numbers and. You know, they didn't believe it at the CIA that I had them. So I, I didn't have them, but I had pictures of the serial numbers and that day's newspapers taken, sent to the CIA. And once they realized that I was getting serious intel, they started asking me about bin Laden. And that's when the hunt for him started between me and the CIA. I found out about the investigation later. I didn't start working with U.S. intelligence because of my case. Right. My case interfered with my work with U.S. intelligence because I had to drop what I was doing when I found out there was an investigation, come back, surrender, and work with the FBI and the Justice Department on my case, and I became a cooperator in my case. But I started working with U.S. intel way before. Not way before, but at least a year before that. I don't think you ever All right, so, told us the Cypress story, by the way. Oh, the Cypress story is great. Yeah. By the way, in your in your lawyer's letter, they do say you were, while in you were traveling in Cyprus under the FBI's supervision, I was. your cover came dangerously close to being blown. Yes. During the operation. Yes. It was the one time it was one of the times that, you know, the FBI and the Cyprus National Police or whoever, it was a joint operation were a little too close to me, and they almost blew my cover. I don't blow my cover. I don't have a cover. I'm Felix, you know. Well, actually, I I had a different name under that operation, but still played a different version of myself, I guess. So the U.S. government uh, came to me, and I think this was, if I'm not mistaken, sometime in 2004. This is way after all the work I did on 9-11 and al-Qaeda, which I did for, I don't know, three, four years. They came to me, and they said, look, we have a major problem. Russian hackers are hacking into U.S. financial institutions and emptying out people's bank accounts. And if it becomes publicly known that bank accounts are being emptied, most people, when they hear about that bank accounts at Chase or Bank of America or HSBC, whatever bank in the United States that they were targeting, and there was a few that they were targeting – that their accounts are being emptied, most people are not going to go home and read the FDIC insurance for their account. They're going to pull their money out of the bank that day, which could cause a run on the bank. And a run on the bank could cause the collapse of a bank, which could have a domino effect. This is very dangerous. Not only are they robbing U.S. citizens, it's very dangerous for our financial system. 
and we actually don't have anybody that could help infiltrate. You speak Russian. You understand finance. You understand bad guys, English. You're so multifaceted. We don't have anybody that could help us. Could you help us with this? I said, sure. So they um, introduced me to this. They had somebody that they knew, and they introduced me by email to the group. And under the supervision of the Justice Department and the FBI, I proceeded to establish basically a money laundering operation. But the problem was I was helping them financially, but we couldn't get to them because they were hiding behind computer names. And we didn't know where they were because all you have to do is just reping your computer from a few different places and bingo, you don't know who the guy is. That's the problem with cybercrime and hacking and all of that. But after a year of getting into their confidence, we finally agree. I, t I tell them about an opportunity, how to make a lot of money, and we agree. Finally, I gain their confidence to meet in Cyprus. So we're at a hotel in Cyprus, and I've got the FBI guys in one room. I'm in one room, the FBI guys in the next room, and in the other room is the Cyprus National Police. And I was supposed to meet these guys for the first time, who I've already been doing business with for a while, by the pool. So I walk downstairs and, you know, they've got like you know, eight different rooms with binoculars looking. Half the waiters are police or FBI. And I'm like, oh, these guys, you could, you know, because I walk in, I could tell that they're, I don't know, maybe a sixth sense or something. And we're sitting by the pool talking and the guy says, let's get out of here. And as we're walking to the uh, parking lot, which is in front of the hotel. I get a call from the FBI agent in charge, and he says, do not get into his car. There's a chase car with four bad guys. You're not walking out of this one alive. And I am listen to him, and I'm like, the thing that ran through my mind is, I just spent a year and a half setting this up. Screw this. And I said, all right, Mom, I'll call you back. So as I'm standing there, he's about to get in the car. The wheel is on the other side, like in England. And it's a Range Rover. I said, you know what? I used to have a Range when I was in London, when I lived in London. Can I drive? I haven't driven in a while. He said, sure, here you go. Because I figured we were on the main street in Limassol in Cyprus. I'll spot the car behind us. I'll spot the chase car with the bad guys. And if that's the case, I'm just going to ram the car into the first car dealership with the big glass I see. And in the commotion, get away, hopefully. Well, it turns out that the chase car with the four bad guys in back of us were with him. And he took me to a strip joint. So uh, they weren't there to kill me. They were there to party with me. And then when I showed up, you know, I, first of all, as soon as I got into the strip show, I said I have to go to the bathroom, made a phone call, told them, you know, I'm okay. They said, we were looking for you. We thought you were already dead and chopped up. I said, all right, don't be dramatic. I came back, and I remember, like yesterday, I came into the room, and the FBI agent looks at me and says, when I tell you don't get in the car, you don't get in the car. Do you have any idea how much paperwork I would have to do if you got killed <laughs> on my watch? I was like, okay, <laughs> calm down. But uh, so that was, but that uh, was that was a funny experience. Right. You know, I've had, well, it's a, I've had a bunch of those. It, you know, a, the funniest experience. It's a great is, scene for the movie, <laughs> the movie about Felix Sater's life, um, which we'll yeah, get. Yeah, my to only later. my only problem and, is and, I want Joe Pesci to play yeah. it because he could play it really funny. <laughs> All right, so look, from '98 on, you are working secretly for as a government informant for the FBI, the CIA. I was never an informant. You're also, I was never an informant. I what was do a we call you? Uh, uh, the government, the FBI, okay. the judges. Everybody either called me uh, a CS, which is a confidential right. source, or a CI, 
Uh, 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 you know, okay. they never they never refer to me as an informant. Well, and, CI would be confidential informant. No, but, um, CS uh, confidential but, source. Okay. Anyway, my point is, you're still, but you're also still trying to make it in the New York real estate world. Well, no, real estate started some... like 2000. All right. Well, let's flash forward okay, to 2000. You're continuing. 2000, but you... my my point is, at some point, you meet one Donald J. Trump. When do you meet Trump? How do you become entwined with Trump and end up, I think, uh, as I recall correctly, just two offices down from his in Trump Tower? Well, <sighs> who's Donald J. Trump again? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's Look, the president. Okay, okay, okay. I just, I just don't remember past. him. I just don't remember him. If yeah. you sit in a room yeah. here today, I wouldn't recognize him. Just kidding. Uh, that, walked- that's what he said about you, and we'll get to that. According, according to the account in our just-published story about all this by our colleague Alex Azarian, you just— you had an office in Trump Tower, and you walked right into Donald Trey Trump's office. That's exactly what I did. And what uh, happened? I walked into his office, and he said, can I help you? I said, yes. I'm a tenant down on 24. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm going to be the biggest developer in New York, and I think you should become my partner now while I'm still cheap. And he started laughing, and uh, we spent about a half hour to an hour just chatting, and then he introduced me to... Charlie Reese and Russell Flicker, who were basically president or like co-presidents or something of the Trump org. And in a very short time after that, we became partners. And I my first deal was Trump Phoenix. which So I you become a full fledged member. No, I'm not a Trump member. I have my own company. No, okay. no. All right. I, I had my own company, uh, which was Bayrock Group, which I left beginning of 08. And then I came back in 2010 and I walked in to say hello to the president and he said, where have you been? I've been looking for you. I said, well, I've been traveling. I was abroad internationally for about almost two years. He said, I want you to come work with me. And that's how I became his senior advisor, which was in 2010. And then I had an office three doors down from him. It was him, Rona, Jason, and then my office. You, Prior to that, I was in, on the 24th floor. He was on the 26th floor. Right. But I believe it was before that that you accompanied Ivanka and Don Jr. to Moscow. Yeah, that, yes. That was, I don't remember it was <clears throat> 06, 07. I don't remember when. Yes, right. I did. How did that come about? Donald asked me, the president said, look, my kids are going to Moscow. Would you mind uh, going with them? You know, I'd, be, I'd feel a lot safer if you were there. I said, sure. Was this when they began scoping out Trump Tower Moscow? Nah, they were talking about Trump Tower Moscow since the 90s or even earlier, since the 80s. But that's what you were doing on that trip. Yeah, yes, yes. We were looking for, you know, well, the answer is yes and yes, because you also meet people and, you know, other business opportunities could come up. But the predominant uh, purpose of the trip was definitely to find a site for Trump Moscow. Right. And you also happened to escort Ivanka into Vladimir Putin's office, if I recall correctly. Yes, that took a bit of work, but I got it done. <laughs> she actually How wanted to sit in his. Access? She actually wanted to sit in his chair, and I asked the guy who was with us on the tour because I took her privately in there. It wasn't part of you know general admission, and we were met by the curator of the Kremlin and one of Putin's you know the equivalent of Secret Service or something. The guys that protect them and a translator, and we had a gigantic tour all through the Kremlin. 
And as we pass, when we finished and the curator finished telling us how in this room, this treaty was signed, in this room, this guy was coronated, and in this room, this queen did whatever she did. As we're already leaving, we're going through a, a corridor with offices, but you know, pretty grand. And um, the guy says, this is the boss's office. And I said, let's see it. He says, well, he's not there. I said, so what? Just open the door. And he did. And he opened the door and he held it. We looked inside. And Ivanka says, do you think I could sit in his chair? And I asked him. And the guy looked at me. He said, are you out of your mind? I said, what is she going to do, steal a pen? She's the daughter of an important American businessman. You know, you know who sent us here. Let her sit in the chair. You're right here. What's what's she going to do? So he said, all right. And she sat in the chair, spinning around twice. You know, she was giddy like a schoolgirl afterwards. And that was it. Okay, let's talk about how you get entangled later in the Mueller probe. In 2015, you write uh, a somewhat notorious email that helped fuel the narrative that Trump was a uh, an asset of the Russians, if not a wholly wholly owned uh, subsidiary of the of the Kremlin. And yeah, I'm going to read the this Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. You know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read this. It was a good movie. Our boy can become president of the USA, and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage this process. So what were you thinking when you wrote that, and how do those words look to you right now? Stupid. <laughs> how did, why did I write it? I could have written something else. Well, we tried to do a Trump-Moscow deal a few times in the past, and they even tried even before me, actually. And when he started running, there's all these positive conversations uh, about Russia and all these positive press that he's getting in Russia. He's saying good things about Russia. The Russians are saying good things about him because previously the Russians were saying, why would we pay basically the Trump tax? Why would we pay him for his name? We could just take a Marriott Hotel or a Sheraton and pay a lot less. Why is somebody going to buy an apartment in Moscow from Donald Trump? Nobody knows him here. It dawned on me that, hey, now they know him. Now I can get this deal done that I tried to do in the past. So that's when I reached out to uh, Michael Cohen and said, you know, I could get a Trump Tower Moscow deal done. I had a developer who was a friend of mine ready to go. We didn't have the land. We didn't have the site yet. But those are small details. When you're thinking big, you start there and then fill in the blanks. And um, he was running for president. And I knew they were interested in him winning. I was interested in building a Trump Moscow. I mean, let's face it. Him becoming president of the United States and me being torn apart for three years and my whole life being torn upside down, or me making 50 to $100 million on a Trump Tower Moscow, what are you betting my motivation was? And did you, you didn't actually think he was going to become president, did you? Did you? Um, I think Could most, you point most to who didn't. did? Yeah, okay. Okay, so go back in time at that time. You had President Barack Obama get on TV and laughing, saying he's never going to become president. Every reporter was laughing at it. I'm sitting there going, we can make some money. So, you know, don't put it on me. What were you thinking? What was everybody else thinking? To me, it looked like an opportunity to get a real estate deal done. Then I got ambitious. I said, you know what? Let's make it the tallest building in Europe. A couple of drinks later, you know, I'm thinking, let's make it the tallest building in the world. So, so this was hubris. Well, it, no, I actually wanted to build a tallest building in Europe. I was actually involved in the in the development. I was on the board of directors at Mirax, and we actually built in Moscow the tallest building in Europe. It was called Federation Tower. 
It was subsequently replaced by a taller building, but I was involved in the construction and the development of the tallest building in Europe once, and I didn't see any reason why I couldn't do it again. Okay, two questions come to my mind as I hear you tell this story. One is, you've been, at this point, by 2015, exposed in the press. The New York Times has done a front-page story about your criminal past, pointing out your connections to Trump, uh, suggesting that um, there's uh, something unsavory in Trump's relationship with you. And Trump's response is to essentially disown you. In a 2013 affidavit in a lawsuit, he says, if Sater were sitting in the room right now, I really wouldn't know what he looked like. In 2015, when he's called by the Associated Press, he says, Felix Sater, boy, I have to even think about it. I'm not familiar with him. Now, you had an office two doors down from Donald Trump. You did business with him. You were photographed with him. You were with him at the opening of Trump Soho, and you were with him in... uh, Denver, I believe. And people saw you together. People saw you talking. Why would you want to do business with Donald Trump after he had dissed you like this? Because Michael Isakoff wasn't going to help me develop the tallest building in Europe and make 50 to $100 million. Well, you didn't ask. I'm asking now. We could do the Isakoff Tower. <laughs> okay. Um, You know, look, I was doing business. Why would I want to do anything? I don't care what anybody says. If I paid attention to what everybody says, think of the stuff that they wrote about me, which was mostly negative and mostly designed specifically to be negative because of Donald Trump. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Hate every reporter who writes a bullshit story about me? Get insulted, get upset about what people say? Listen. He's not. It's not the first presidential family to have disavowed me. I guess my point is that you had a relationship with the guy, and here he's saying under oath in a sworn uh, affidavit, I wouldn't even know you if you walked in the room. Okay. I mean, how, how do you feel when you, when you read that? I think it's something that I have to truly dive deeper on my next session with my psychiatrist. I don't know if I could answer that, you know right now on this podcast right i'll have to understand my feelings all right we're gonna need to start wrapping up here so i'm just getting started (laughs) see i knew i should have one more i I knew i should have gone on howard stern (laughs) i'm just kidding guys i really appreciate the opportunity to come here it's really been an honor to be here and for you guys to invite me it's 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 a very big honor for me i appreciate it one other Trump question. Here, I, got, I, I was going to bet you 10 to 1 that it's going to be a Trump question, not, a, not right, any right, other right. question. But we'll, go ahead, we'll Mike. We'll move on to other things. I got Okay. So all these years that you're working with Donald Trump, you're advising him, you're down in the office from him, you're doing all this secret work for the government. Did, did Trump or anybody in the Trump organization, such as Michael Cohen or others, know about your secret work for the U.S. government? Donald did, but only very, only very lightly. I told him about it, but I didn't give him details. And then when he was running, I gave him a very detailed letter of everything that I did. Really? Yes. And uh, so just walk us through that. When did you first tell him? I don't and remember. What did you say? The, sometime in the 2000s. You know, listen, I work with, you know, I've been working on some very serious stuff, <clears throat> you know, with the U.S. government. I didn't give him a details. Right. 
and then you wrote him a letter anybody. while he was while he was running for president. Yes. You wrote him a letter yes. laying it. Well, I had my. I think detail. I had my lawyer write him the letter. I don't remember if it was from me or from my attorney. I don't remember, but yeah, I wrote him a letter detailing everything and laying out what you know the when, better part. Of what the year plan. would that have been? I don't remember. Probably twenty fifteen or fifteen or yeah. When did he get elected? Sixteen. Sixteen. So fifteen. Fifteen yeah. or sixteen. Yeah. And how, how did he? And how did, did he? he rea- how did he react? Well, I didn't have a conversation with him about it, but from what I understand, he wanted to take it to the press, and his attorney—I forget his name. What's his name? Uh, told him it's not a good idea. Alan Garten. Uh, I think it was Alan Garten. Uh, you'd have to ask my attorney because he spoke to him. I didn't speak to him directly. He said, "No, this is you know sealed information. U.S. government. You don't need to." Well, get why did he want it to take it to I, the press? Ask him. I don't know. I don't know. Why did? Why did, Trump, well, why, why did Trump he, want to take it to the press? Because it was good. It was good. Is the guy that yeah. worked with him that you know was doing stuff to protect our country. How is right. that bad? Right. You know why? Why do all you know, for the same reason that the reporters don't want to write or talk about it because it's mildly positive towards him. It's patriotic. It was yeah I mean, yeah. It's yeah. patriotic. It's you know whatever it was, but you know it was certainly not a negative towards him, and that's why you know most of the press wouldn't write about it until it came out. Today, because it was, you know, it's, it's, it's a DOJ document. It's not something that you need to corroborate. It's a fact. It was written by the Department of Justice. You know, the things that I've done, you know, I risked my life, tried to protect our country, hopefully saved a lot of lives. No, for a fact, I've saved U.S. servicemen's lives in Afghanistan with the work that I did, because we didn't even touch on anything that we did in Afghanistan, which was airstrikes and weapons caches and Al Qaeda troop movements and where bin Laden was and where uh, Taliban fighters were. And I know that that enhanced our capability and our military capability on the ground. And when I think that um, as a Jewish immigrant kid from Coney Island that I could have something to do as important and have been given the honor and the opportunity to protect my country, to protect America in any way, that was a big deal to me. And it was really upsetting that the only thing that anybody wanted to write about was, you know, bar fight and stock fraud when I was 25. I'm 53 years old. I spent 20 years literally putting my life on the line to protect our country and never asked for anybody to know about it, never told anybody about it. But just to stick it to Donald Trump, let's write about a bar fight when I was 25. That's not fair. That's not right. You didn't answer Danny's very first question for you, is, which was, do you feel vindicated with the release of this letter? Um, honestly, I think I need to let it sink in, see how it's accepted, see what people say about it, because, you know, you still have, you know, to the right, I'm, uh, I'm a demon. I'm a, uh, basically a, a Comey Clinton plant in the Trump world, which is just absurd, ridiculous, and it only, uh, is surpassed in ridiculousness by the left writing that, you know, I am a uh, a Russian agent and, you know, they're expecting little baby Putins to be jumping out of birthday cakes in Mar-a-Lago or something. It's just absurd. I'm, I'm sort of demonized by both sides and I'm in the middle. I'm like, you know, there's an old joke. The king of the animals, which is the lion, says, all right, I'm tired of everybody's behavior, you know. I want the smart animals to the left and the good-looking animals to the right. And everybody starts shuffling one way or the other, and the monkey standing in the middle says, what do you want me to do, tear myself in half? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd end it on a joke. A 
Yeah. All right. Wait, wait. I got a couple of quick details, which I just want to go over sure. very quickly in, in reviewing the letter. There's uh, there's some pretty uh, uh, stunning cases cited, including that you foiled or provided information about an assassination plot against President George W. Bush. Tell us what that was and how you helped. Uh, well, there was uh, actually two assassination attempts. One was against Colin Powell and al-Qaeda, uh, al-Qaeda soldiers or fighters. Uh, I don't want to refer to them as soldiers. They're just al-Qaeda fighters uh, were in a hut which was close enough to the uh, flight path of the planes landing in Bagram Air Base. And uh, they were going to take out the plane either on approach to land or on takeoff of Colin Powell's plane when he was going to visit the troops in Afghanistan. And um, I had an inside source, believe it or not, how crazy does this sound? I had an inside source in the cave with Mullah Omar and bin Laden. That's where I was getting my intel from because I basically co-opted Mullah Omar's personal secretary to provide me intel. That's why it was such a high level. And that was the first information I gave them, which was about Colin Powell. And then subsequently, I was told about details of the woman who owns the Senate office building barber shop is a woman from Afghanistan who ran away to the United States when during the Russian Afghanistan war. And she went to work for the barber shop and eventually she either owns it or manages it. But the Al Qaeda uh, group sent in two women who were obviously Al Qaeda, you know, operatives to befriend her. And they were here for quite a long period of time. I don't know if that was a year, two or three, to befriend her in the hope that she would drop the name of whose haircut she was doing tomorrow, George Bush. And they were looking, hopefully, to get Bush or somebody like uh, Cheney. And again, this is the Senate barbershop. So everybody, the entire leadership gets their haircut there at one point or another. And they were going to put a biological agent on her that would have killed her, unknowing, unbeknownst to her, by the way, that would have killed her and everybody she came into contact with that day. And that was the assassination attempt on uh, George W. Bush. Because their goal was to hit Bush, but they would have taken somebody like a Cheney or somebody else if it took too long. This was supposed to, this assassination was supposed to actually take place in the barbershop? It was, yeah, anybody who came into contact with her that day would have been hit with biological agent. There are a lot, you know, um, that does 10, 12 people to, could have um, been killed. Or maybe another more. fascinating detail that was actually in your lawyer's letter that was also unsealed. You know who my lawyer was? Federal judge. Uh, yeah, Leslie Caldwell, who had been in the uh, a, a prosecutor in the Eastern District under L Loretta Lynch, then becomes chief of the criminal division of the U.S. Justice Department under Obama. Yes. So but, I just um, just just in that, case, the, just in case the left wants to question that one. She was Obama's. Right. Uh, you know, chief of criminal division. But the right is definitely yes. going to at this point be convinced that I'm a plant in the Trump <laughs> world. And I was sent it, in by Barack Obama and the Clintons and James Comey to, you know, infiltrate and right. get Donald Trump, which is just, you know. So here's the sentence nonsense. in her letter that leapt out at me through another source. Felix learned and gave to the FBI the name of a Washington, D.C. restaurant with ties to Al Qaeda. Yeah, there was a there was a couple of businesses. Including, what was the restaurant? I don't remember the name. I mean, I, I don't think I don't oh, think we can. Uh, Michael, listen, <laughs> I'd love to take you out to dinner. I don't think the place is taking any more reservations. But no, there was also another business in New Mexico 
that was a jewelry company that was laundering money for Al-Qaeda and getting the money to the World Trade Center bombers. So, yeah, no, I provided them a lot of stuff. You have to understand that the letters that you see were designed to be shortened summaries for the judge, and the judge is not going to read a book. So that's why both of them are like 10 pages. They're designed to be short. It doesn't even nearly touch upon all the things that I've done. It's actually just some highlights. So, yeah, I provided them information on World Trade Center, bombers, you know, financial structure of al-Qaeda, banks where al-Qaeda was keeping their money. I helped them with a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm very proud of what I did, and I'm happy. That I'm, I only hope that the what I provided was helpful and was valuable to U.S. intelligence. Well, it clearly was uh, from the uh, from the letters that uh, have now just been released. Uh, the judge is not going to read a book, but he could well watch a movie of Felix Sater's life, which I think anybody listening to this is probably thinking, when is that movie going to be made and by whom and who is going to play you? You said you wanted Joe Pesci, but tell us, uh, are there uh, talks underway to do something with your amazing life story? Honestly... I was thinking about writing a book, but I, you know, it's an introspective of my own life, and I'm hoping that I could write a great book. I definitely need a co-author to do it with, but I want to write a great book, and I'm not writing it to make a movie or, you know, for a Hollywood premiere, which is a lot of fun. I've been to a bunch, but for me, I'm literally, because of the complexities of my life, because of the things that were written about me, good and bad, because of the difficulties surrounding all of that and the craziness that my life is, because I don't think you could make this up if you tried. I truly want to write this book with a really understanding of myself and not sugarcoat anything and not hide the bad, but I really want to write this book for my yet-to-be-born grandchildren so that sometime in the distant future, when they're old enough, and they're not born yet, so you know, we're talking 20, 30 years, maybe they could read who their grandfather was and understand him, both the good and the bad. Like I said, you know, the only thing I hope is, and I think I said it to Alex in his piece, there's going to come a time where I stand in front of my maker, and I know the bad that I've done, but I know for a fact that I have stopped 100,000 times more crime than I committed with my bar fight and the stock fraud, and I know that I protected my country, and I know I risked my life for it, and I'm hopeful that I saved a lot of lives doing it, and I hope I was helpful to the United States. And i got to tell you something. If I'm asked, I'll do it again tomorrow. There's a, uh, there's a line in Alex Nazarian's uh, excellent piece in Yahoo News. It says, every age gets the hero it deserves, and Seder seems perfectly suited for ours. You're a student of Russian literature, I'm sure. Maybe your book could be called A Hero of Our Time, which was Lermontov. Well, you know, I wouldn't go so far as hero, <laughs> uh, complex uh, individual, complex character. I don't want to – I'm afraid, you know, of uh, twisting my arm if I start patting myself on the back. I don't know if I would say hero. I think, I think the heroes that we have every day put on a uniform and protect our country for, you know, 1100 bucks a month. Those are real heroes. Me, I was just proud to have been given the opportunity, and I was ecstatic and jumped at the chance to do anything I could to help whether it was the battle against crime here or the mob or terrorism or whatever I could do, because I'm not proud of the bad things I've done. But again, one was a bar fight, and the other one was a stupid situation that you know I really needed money and got involved in some really 
bad crap, which I'm not proud of, never was. That's why I voluntarily left. I was making a lot of money doing it. I left it on my own because I wasn't proud of myself. And when given the opportunity to correct those things, I jumped at it. And I'll do it again. Well, well it's a extraordinary. Strikes me as a as a tale for a, a, a made for Dostoevsky. Crime, couldn't we find, and couldn't we find and redemption? Can I ask you a question? Couldn't we find an American author? Because I'm really tired of this whole Russian label thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Tom Clancy or somebody. All right. Well, you know? I mean, listeners, uh, you know, uh, you heard Felix's uh, entreaty. So um, maybe something will come of this. Hey, Felix, thanks a lot for doing this. It was uh, it's a big day for you, but it was a big day for us, for you to come and do this. Your first interview post the release of these documents. Uh, the only thing I could say is that it's been beyond an honor to be invited by you and uh Really, thank you very much for letting me talk about myself. It's truly an honor to be here, and I hope that your listeners enjoy it. And I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to do my, you know, stand-up joke routine. But uh, next time, next time, I'll next come time. On. Well, you, you you said you want to get away from the uh, Russian labels. Uh, let me just say, I think this is a great American story. Thank you. So thank you very much, uh, Felix Sater. Thank you so much. Thanks to Felix Sater for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.